Let me invite you now to turn to your Bibles, Romans chapter 2 and verses 9 to 11. You'll find it in the church Bibles on page 940, Romans chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. Let's come now to God's Word with this fantastic music ringing in our ears and worship being the context of our study. Romans chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, and page 940. Let's hear God's Word. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. This is God's Word. Well, we come now to Paul's letter to the Romans. Once more this morning, after a brief break uh, last week. And uh, the title for this sermon certainly caused a smile when we looked at these verses around the staff table this week. Mr. Bean goes to church and finds a surprise. Many of us will probably know that Mr. Bean is a slightly painful and funny uh, comedian. And some of us will know that in one scene, he acts out of silent experience of going to church and not understanding anything that is said. You know, if you ever think that going to church is easy for someone who does not understand all the things that people who grew up in church take for granted, just watch that YouTube clip of Mr. Bean goes to church. It is a real eye-opener. But why this title? Well, because the passage is addressing deliberately two groups of people. It is saying twice repeated for emphasis, to the Jew first, and also the Greek. There is the same standard of expected behavior because God shows no partiality. You see, earlier in this letter, Paul has said that the gospel comes to the Jew first and also the Greek. Now he says, yes, but uh, though there is that wonderful spiritual privilege of priority to the Jew, there is also with it a commensurate spiritual responsibility. For there will be judgment as well to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul's point here is uh, that we have to make the most of our spiritual Opportunity. That's how uh, it is generalized. Let me explain that for us like this. Someone may have come in here uh, understanding very little of what is going on. Well, they, as it were, the Greek, have nonetheless an opportunity. 
They have to seize that moment and make the most of it. On the other hand, someone may have come in here today with a lot of background and understanding and, like the Jew, have enormous spiritual privileges and opportunities. Well, they too have a spiritual opportunity today and one that it is important that they make the most of. Why? Because God shows no partiality. That is, God does not say, well, they don't know much, therefore it doesn't matter what they do or think. Nor does he say, well, they have the theory, they grew up in church, or they made a profession of faith, or they were baptized, or they go to chapel or a Christian school. And therefore, it doesn't matter whether they actually live like a Christian. No. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek, there is an opportunity. And it has to be seized. For God shows no partiality. He expects us all to make the most of the spiritual opportunity before us right now. First, make the most of your spiritual opportunity to not do evil because God shows no partiality. And so verse 9 again says this, doesn't it? As you look down with me at your Bibles, it says, There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. Now, there are aspects of this verse that are important to contextualize, to put into context in order to grasp accurately and not misinterpret. See, my friends, the primary rule of all Bible study is context. That goes before understanding the original language in which the text was written because these words are part of a larger story, a larger argument in which they are placed. There is a logic, a flow of discussion and a presentation of a thesis, a message. So if we just took this verse out of the context of the rest of the Romans, we would misunderstand it completely. And that is exactly what many people have done, in fact. They look at this verse and then they wonder whether Paul is teaching salvation by works. Surely he is, they think, because Paul says that judgment is going to be solely on the basis of what we do for every human being. Well, that settles it, they think. And they move on without realizing what an enormous mistake is being made. Well, you see, this verse in, in the context of Paul is, uh, is that he is making the case that we all need to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. The end point of Paul's argument in this section is chapter 3, verse 23, where Paul writes this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So then, 
Whatever this verse means, it cannot mean that we're saved by works because Paul's argument is that no one will be saved by works. Now, my friends, this is why it's important that we actually read the Bible rather than just have a collection of nice thoughts from the Bible out of context. That's not the way to approach the Bible at all anymore if, uh, than if you took one little sentence out of a blog and quoted it out of context. Would you understand the point of the author? No, you have to understand the parts in the context of the whole. Otherwise, you will misunderstand what the author is trying to communicate. Uh, perhaps uh, you've heard the story of the person who was seeking guidance and so decided to open the Bible at random and put his finger on a, a verse at uh, random in the Bible. And as he did this, he came across the verse which says, Judas went and hung himself. Uh, discouraged, he decided, though, that he attempt his technique again, and he empty, opened the Bible at random, put his finger on a verse at random, and, but this time he came across, go and do likewise. <laughs> well, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound, he decided to do it one final time, and this time he came across the verse that says, what you are about to do, do quickly. No, the, the Bible is not a collection of best thoughts for the day. It has a story, an overarching narrative, a theme, a message. Not simply a set of quotations that you can stick on a t-shirt or place in the center of a nicely designed poster. And so, when we read this verse in context, we know it cannot mean that we're saved by works. What does it mean then? Well, quite simply, that to the Jew first and also the Greek, there will be an accounting based upon whether their faith in God is real or not. Uh, you see, Paul has said, hasn't he, in this uh, letter of his to the Romans, that salvation is by faith. In his great thematic statement for the letter, he says this, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. Well, uh, how do we know, Paul, whether this faith is real or not? Paul is saying it's by our behavior. The Jew first, also the Greek, so whether we, like the Jew, does have great spiritual privileges, or like the Greek, we're someone who did not grow up with the Bible, read regularly at home, and we come from outside the community of faith. Either way, we all need to make the most of our spiritual opportunity to not do evil. This is because of what real saving faith is is. Saving faith is not simply intellectual assent. Saving faith is the work of the Spirit by which God regenerates us and makes us new. 
Saving faith is not simply saying, I believe that God exists. Even the, even, the, even the devil does that, the Bible tells us. Saving faith is not simply saying that I believe the creeds. Or I know the Bible in my head. can quote a verse or two. Saving faith is not simply going to a youth group and getting a momentary spiritual high. Saving faith is a living work of Christ by His Spirit which opens our eyes to see the glory of Jesus whose death more than sufficiently covers our unrighteousness. So faith is trust. It's putting our trust in Jesus and it is something that we do as we trust him and take him at his word. But that faith is not merely intellectual assent. It is not merely an acceptance of the truth of God intellectually. It is a gift of the Holy Spirit by which we become new and are made new. There is a direct infusion of God's Holy Spirit into our hearts so that we are not merely nice-looking people, but newly made people. This is the case whether we are the Jew who had the things of God taught to them from a young age and has great spiritual privilege. Or the Greek, who is not sure whether or not the Lord's Prayer is in the Bible, or whether John the Baptist is in the Bible, and thinks that Noah is only a new movie by Russell Crowe. It doesn't matter, Paul says. Either way, our faith needs to be a gift of God that results in us not doing evil. Our behavior evidences our faith. We are saved by Jesus and Him alone. And this side of glory, we never perfectly do what is right. And we never perfectly avoid what is evil. But those who have this true faith in Jesus evidence that faith with avoidance of evil and pursuit of the good. There is a true moral change that takes place. Now, my friends, I I do understand that this is not an easy message, but it is an important one. I think it was Thomas Edison who said that opportunity is missed by most people because it's dressed in overalls and looks like work. Hmm. Well, it would be easy for me to avoid this sort of part of the Bible and pretend it does not exist because it sounds like work. I, I, I could serve up for you only sweet sounds that I believe would tickle your ears. But I am committed before God to speak the truth as I find it in the Bible, knowing that one day you and I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 
And that judgment seat is far more of a compelling prospect for me than how I stand before the judgment seat of the opinion of my peers or how I am judged in the blogosphere. It would be easy for me to draw a straw poll and figure out what most people want, take the temperature of the popularity of the vote and gauge a message by that standard or see how the wind is blowing and cut the sails of my message to suit the winds of change. Or I can say that Christian moral behavior evidences whether someone is actually a Christian or not. That is what Paul is saying. I don't know about you, my friends, but it seems to me some days that uh, we're living nowadays in a strange netherworld of alternative reality, spiritually speaking, right now. People want to tell us that all will be okay if we stay in this matrix of delusional immorality and that there is no judgment day to come. But I'm offering you today, in the language of that movie, a choice between staying in that delusion when just repeating the words of church tradition, saying what everyone else says, morally is okay, is okay, or making the most of the opportunity to avoid evil, to take the red pill, as that movie put it. To open our eyes and realize that how we live as a follower of Jesus really does matter. Don't take my word for it. Take God's. Second, though, not only are we to make the most of our spiritual opportunity to avoid evil because God shows no partiality, we're also to make the most of our spiritual opportunity, second, to do good because God shows no partiality. This is verse 10. Paul writes, But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. Let me illustrate uh, this in the following way. A young man, a big city, Africa. This young man rises to the top of his profession. He's a teacher, a professor at a high-end university level, trained in the most elite schools and reckoned to be one of the finest minds of his generation. He's living the high life too, for in that city, professors of his standing are not considered nerdy ivory tower recluses, but rock stars with sex appeal. And so he plays around with sensual experiences, and he dabbles also in various kinds of spirituality. One particularly esoteric, mystical sect appeals to him, and he becomes a devotee of this religious group, which requires very little of him morally, but gives him a buzz in the religious realm to couple with the buzz he experiences in other realms. 
It's not a particularly coherent framework intellectually, but nonetheless, he feels that it gives room for him to be what he wants to be as well as do what he wants to do, and he uses his brilliant mind to defend its far from brilliant propositions. This handsome young man's life carries on this for some time, gradually emerging into greater moral questionability and becoming more entrenched in the privileged life that he is enjoying. All around him consider him to be a high flyer, young, successful, attractive, on the verge, not just of fantastic wealth, but true historic greatness, perhaps. Still, in his heart of hearts, this young man knows that all is not right. He feels a strange sense of unease. His mother is a Christian, and quietly... She has been praying for years now. One day in the heat of an African garden, this young man is outside. Now his sense of unease has grown. He's beginning to feel quite tortured. He does not know what's wrong or why he feels this way or what he can do about it. He begins to pace up and down, side to side, back and forwards, hands clasped behind his back, brow furrowed, his face looking far more worn with care than he would ever want any of his adoring students, fans to see, or those who considered him to be one of the most handsome men of his age. Suddenly as he is thinking, a quiet, happy sound comes across from over the wall in the garden next to his privileged dwelling. It is children playing Of course, he has no children that he can rightly call his own, though he has had many an opportunity as a sire offspring. It's not a sound that normally would greet him with merriment, viewing it more as a distraction and something that would prevent him from doing what he wants to do. But this sound of children playing is so happy, so lacking in worldly sophistication, that the sound of a playground... And one happy voice starts more clearly to come into his consciousness, and he begins to listen. Slowly, he catches the repeated words of this child as it plays, saying over and over again, Tolle, legge, tolle, legge, tolle, legge. Take, read, take, read, take, read. With a happy, unguarded, childish joy. Take, read. The man takes it as his cue. He rushes back into his house from the garden where he'd been walking. He picks up a much despised Bible. He opens it and reads from... Paul's letter to the Romans. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh 
to gratify its desires. A text never before or since, to my knowledge, used in any evangelistic talk, but one that was taken and read and by the Spirit of Christ converted one young man to be the great Augustine of Hippo, perhaps the greatest Christian leader since the Apostle Paul himself. The opportunity does not have to be profound. It does not have to be complicated. But it does have to be seized. Tolle. Lege. Glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The glory of God in which uh, those of us in Jesus share now and in perfect glory in the world to come. The honor of God in which those of us who follow Jesus share now and in perfect honor in the world to come. The peace. The shalom wholeness which we have in Christ now and will have in perfect peace then in the world to come is on offer this morning to you, Jew first and also the Greek privileged person with prior understanding of the things of Christ and person who has come in and hardly understands the first thing about this thing we call church you do not need to know much you do not need to have much All you need to do is take and read and make the most of this opportunity to follow Jesus now. Let's pray together. Oh Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to do that. To make the most of this opportunity to follow you now. Whether we are someone who has great sophisticated understanding, reads commentaries before breakfast, writes books, preaches sermons maybe. Someone who studies the Bible for a living or at school. Or whether we're someone for whom this is all a little bit new. Perhaps someone who um, did grow up in some kind of church but has been away for so many years that it feels foreign again. And they're just trying to orientate themselves to this 
experience again. Either way, Jesus, we pray that you would help each of us to take and read your word, to put our trust in you revealed in your word, and so be transformed to live lives increasingly after your likeness. Glory and honor and peace. We pray these things, asking for your help and the power of your Spirit. And in Jesus' name, amen.